Warren Buffett, BlackRock, and other institutional players dominate investments in commercial aviation. Why? Because it's one of the most profitable and predictable alternative assets that exists. And it's not tied to other markets such as real estate and the stock market. Is it safe? Well, imagine triple net leases to the likes of American Airlines and British Airways. Income is contractual and guaranteed by some of the biggest named airlines in the world. That's why this kind of investment was never available to the ordinary accredited investor. That is until now. Visit accesswealthaviation.com and check it out for yourself. Invest in an institutional team with over 200 plus years of combined investment experience in the aviation sector. Conservative investing with double digit returns and tax advantages. That's accesswealthaviation.com. Accesswealthaviation.com. You are listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast with Buck Joffrey. Get ready to change your life. Welcome, everybody. This is Buck Joffrey with the Wealth Formula Podcast. And today I want to start out by reminding you once again that there is a website behind this podcast that we have, and it's called wealthformula.com. There's all sorts of goodies there for you to check out, including my best-selling book, Seven Secrets of Eternal Wealth, which you can download. You can also simply download that by texting me at 44222 and typing in Wealth Formula as one word. Again, that's 44222, Wealth Formula. Now, I also want to point out that there is another tremendous resource, which those who are participating, I think, would attest to, and that is the Wealth Formula Network. This is the forum, the community in which all Wealth Formula faithful communicate with one another, which includes a forum, a course, and an app now, uh, which you can, by the way, anybody can download the app at uh, iTunes or Stitcher. It's just Wealth Formula, but allows you to communicate with one another uh, if you sign up for Wealth Formula Network. Now, you can check out the whole uh, kit and caboodle, the whole deal there, at wealthformularoadmap.com. But if you are a big fan of this show, if you like what we're talking about, and if you want to get on in the inside, that's where you got to check it out. The people who are on that, um, that Wealth Formula Network particularly are fond of the bi-weekly mastermind calls that we have. And if you know anybody who's in it, I guarantee you they're going to tell you it is definitely uh, a tremendous highlight of that whole thing. Not to mention this course and everything else. I mean, listen, check it out, wealthformularoadmap.com. Now, it's times like these that uh, it's good to talk to others. Why? Because everywhere you turn, it seems like someone is talking about how the market could crash any day. I mean, as I write this, you know, I'm, I'm sitting there today. I work out at the uh, YMCA. Yes, yes, I went with the fancy gym. Uh, I work out there. I've been trying to work out. Uh, and, you know, they have that screen up. Um, so I, you know, read the subtitles because my headphones won't stay in my ears uh, to listen to anything. So uh, I'm looking and it says that the Dow is uh, uh, plunging, right? It's uh, that, uh, you know, as a, as when I was watching this, I don't know what it's going to be like when 
when this when you actually listen to this, but it was saying that the Dow was, you know, that the Dow was falling and the Dow was taking a beating because of uh, Trump's uh, tough on China policy, you know, tariffs, all that kind of good stuff, trade wars, rising interest rates, ballooned asset prices. You're hearing a lot about this in the news every day. Is this baby going to blow or what? It's hard to say. I mean, I don't know the answer to that. Last week, we had chief economist of Fannie Mae on the show. He didn't know that either. And the funny thing is, the last time it really happened, you know, back in 2007, people didn't really know it was going to happen. Then it happened. It was like overnight. Jim Rickards and Peter Schiff think we're in trouble. But when don't they think we're in trouble? I guess that's the question. Not that they're not smart. They're both super smart guys. But... They're the types of guys who uh, have been, you know, who've been preaching the whole doom and gloom thing for the last five, six years. And if you've been sitting on the sidelines that long, you feel pretty foolish right now, right? The reality is that at any given time, we have no idea where or when this correction will be. Now, we do know one thing. We know that what goes up must come down, but we don't know when. That's all we know. We know it must come down. I think, <laughs> right? As for when, I can I, I can tell you that whether it's the housing market or the stock market, the other will follow. That is that is the truth. I, I don't pretend that there is a, um, you know that that the housing market as much as I'm, uh, much more uh, into that world of apartments and self storage and all that stuff that it doesn't get affected. It does. It's just you know, in different ways. And there's different ways to shield yourself by not buying on speculation necessarily, but buying on um, forcing equity and, and creating creating cash flow. So, but the markets do follow one another. There's no question about it. And that's the way it works. That's why you hear this, this term. Uh, you hear that the markets are correlated. Yes, they are. And you, they, that means they follow each other. And uh, for the most part, that relates to all of the asset markets. And we'll see what happens in the next one. It could, it may or may not affect the cryptocurrency market. I think that the last time I had Tika Tuwari on the show, he said that he didn't think it was correlated right now, but as institutional money starts pouring in there, it's hard to imagine that it doesn't become correlated, right? Because after all, why? what is correlation anyway? Well, part of it is that when markets start to drop, that people get into trouble and they start selling off assets. When they sell off assets, they become less valuable. And so, you know, you may sell off one real estate asset to cover a, a margin call in the stock market. Um, similarly, it could end up being the case that people are selling off Bitcoin to sell, uh, to, to pay off a margin call or, you know, getting in trouble on a speculative real estate deal. That's just the nature of a correlated game. Now, does that mean you should stop investing? I don't think that is the case. I think investing in quality assets will eventually lead you to come out ahead. Um, I think you could even say that to be the case. If you were investing in quality assets uh, in 2008, if you weren't following a speculative uh, you know, thesis that even if you were investing in real estate, and you are investing in quality 
assets in primary markets. I mean, look at Dallas. People were investing in Dallas. I mean, sure, the market went down a little bit, but people overall, people did just fine. You know, on the other hand, in the secondary and tertiary markets where people thought they were pulling off more yield, well, I mean, that didn't that didn't turn out so good. And I, and I think that that's what's going to happen again, honestly. I just think correlation, um, market correlation is something that's very difficult to dodge uh, when things go down. But I think if you're in high quality assets in good markets, I think just plan on holding and eventually chances are you'll be just fine. Now, on the other hand, what if it were possible com- to stay completely out of the line of fire, right? Completely out of the line of fire. To invest in something truly uncorrelated with any market. First of all, is it possible? Well, I think it is. And if it's possible, would it make sense to do so? I would argue that it is uh, possible and it does make sense. Uh, that's why I'm an advocate for an asset class that few even know exists outside of Warren Buffett, Bill Gates, some hedge funds, maybe some multinational companies, banks, but not usually Joe Investor. Uh, but this asset class does exist, and it, it's one that few people know about, uh, and it is backed by one of the few guarantees in life. What is In fact, the only guarantee in life as of right now, it's death. Because taxes, Tom Wilwright has shown us that it isn't really all that necessary um, if you play your cards right. So in this week's episode of Wealth Formula Podcast, you are going to learn exactly how you can take part in this ultimate financial hedge. So when we come back to tell us all about that, Tim Wright of ASR. What do the Rothschilds, the Romneys, and the billionaire hedge fund managers know that you don't about growing and protecting wealth? As you might imagine, the wealthy have a few tricks up their sleeves. One strategy allows you to grow wealth tax-free at a compounding rate with no volatility. It protects your money from creditors and lawsuits, and it lets you invest the same money in two different places at the same time. How about that for amplifying wealth? To learn more, go to WealthFormulaBanking.com. Again, that's WealthFormulaBanking.com. Self-storage is a necessary evil. It's where you keep your stuff and forget about it. No wonder this stuff is so profitable and recession-resistant. The Wealth Formula community, well, we've benefited from that. We've made lots of money in this space with Reliant Real Estate, one of the largest self-storage companies in the country. With an average investor internal rate of return of almost 34%, with hold times just over three and a half years, these guys know what the meaning of velocity of money is. If you're an accredited investor, make sure to check out what they're up to right now at ReliantFund4.com. Again, that's ReliantFund4.com. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Today, my guest on Wealth Formula Podcast is Tim Wright. Tim is a senior partner at ASR, Alternative Investments, since 2007. Uh, that may sound familiar to you as Tim's been on the show before. ASR is in the business of life settlements. Now, there's a good chance you've never heard of that. Um, and when you hear about it, it may come as a bit of a surprise to you that this asset class even exists. It certainly did that for me, and that's why um, And I got really interested in it since then. 
Tim has been on the show before, as I mentioned, uh, and one of the reasons I wanted to get him back on the show uh, is that, you know, we're really late in this economic cycle. We are now in the second longest expansion of GDP in U.S. history. Uh, for those of you who heard Doug Duncan on the show recently, um, and it, you know, to a certain extent, some sort of correction is imminent. We don't know when, we don't know how severe, but it's, it's imminent. Uh, it's just part of the cycle. So I thought it would be important to get Tim back on to talk about this, uh, this particular asset classes, because I think it's appropriate for the time. So welcome back to the show, Tim. Well, thanks for having me, Buck. I appreciate it. I always love to be a part of the podcast. Yeah. So, you know, Tim, uh, first of all, uh, you know, why don't you remind our listeners what exactly a life settlement is, right? I mean, it's it's an unusual thing, and a lot of people are probably hearing about hearing that term the first for the first time. Yeah, and, I, and we'll talk about why that is in a minute, but let me define it. Like you said, it's simply the sale of an existing life insurance policy to a third party at a discount to its face amount. So you have a person who has a million dollar policy, they're 85 years old, typically a life settlement would be somewhere between 80 and 90. They have this policy, they don't need it, they don't uh, have a need for it, they don't, they can't afford it any longer. And they want to not let it lapse, but they go to sell it. And they might get 10 cents on the dollar, they might get 30 cents on the dollar, dependent upon life expectancy, their age, what type of policy that it is. And that gets sold to typically Wall Street will pick up a lot of these policies at an institutional level. We do it a little bit different so that uh, your mid to high net worth client can invest right alongside them. But that's basically the gist of it. It's a very simple concept. It's been around for about 25 years. And that's what a life settlement is. So just to <clears throat> circle back here a little bit, you know, and, and help to to uh, get everybody sort of on the same page. We talk about permanent life insurance, whole life insurance, various products uh, that we've even you know talked about on this show. But the, the key here is that this is a permanent life insurance product. So unlike term insurance, uh, which a lot of people have, they skip the whole or uh, universal or whatever, these are policies typically that have a cash value associated with them. Is that correct? That's, they're not term policies, or can you do that too? We don't do term policies primarily because you get to a certain age, the price gets very expensive, and they term out at 70 or 80. Right, right. So they are permanent life insurance policies, yes. Typically, uh, universal life policies. Right. So basically, what you were doing here, uh, what you're doing, if I understand this correctly, uh, well, I know I understand it correctly, but just to clarify, yeah. <laughs> is that you've got somebody, say maybe they're 80 years old, and they've got this life insurance policy that they've been paying on for 50 years. And one day their kids are grown up, they might need some money, and they've really got a couple options. Either they say, well, and maybe they can't even afford their policy anymore, right? Yeah, and, sure. And they have a couple options. One is just to let it run out, which unfortunately a high proportion of people do. The second option is they have a cash value inherent to these things typically. Now, why would somebody take, why would somebody, instead of taking the cash value in a policy, say they've got fifty, you know, $100,000 accumulated in that policy, why would they not just go back to their policy owner and say, hey, give me, uh, you know, $100,000 now and, and let's just call it, you know, let's just call yeah. it a policy. Right. Why would they sell their policy? 
Well, it's one of the cool things about life settlements is there's so many benefits to the insured. One of the benefits is that if you have cash value, you typically strip that cash value before you sell it. So you're getting the cash value and you're getting the value of selling it. The people, the investors, the, you know, Wall Street, whoever's going to buy that policy, we're on the investment side, obviously. They want the death benefit. They're buying into the death benefit. So there may be a situation where the person for tax purposes says, let's keep the uh, the cash value inside the policy, and that will help reduce the cost overall. I'm going to get less cash, but typically what happens is the death benefit is stripped, and then we're buying the death, uh, excuse me, the cash value is stripped, and we're buying the death benefit from the insured. Well, that's interesting. So they get to keep that, and they actually will get more than just the cash value, right? I mean, how much Absolutely. typically more would they get, you know? Well, it's, it's always going to be more than the cash value, and it's, it's going to be somewhere between the cash value and the, the total death benefit. But depending on the life expectancy, which, which, which that's really what drives the pricing here on these policies, it's going to be somewhere between 10 and, say, 30 cents on the dollar. So if I have a million-dollar policy, I may get $300,000 uh, of value given to me on a policy that I don't need anymore. I don't want, I can't afford. It's just a piece of paper and it means nothing to me. And this is one of the reasons that you have these 80 to 85 year olds, 90 year olds that love this option because it's taking something they really don't have a use for anymore. They've outlived the usefulness and they're able to sell it. And, you know, it obviously helps with a lot of expenses that seniors have. Yeah. So one of the questions that I, when I tell people about this for the first time, and I remember I was in I don't even know why I even bother with this, but occasionally I'd go into like a doctor's forum, uh, you know, just to try to, you know, talk to doc other doctors about what I'm doing. Of course, they all think I'm from Mars and they, you know, they, they don't, they don't like what I'm saying, whatever. But I, I talked about life settlements in general. One of the, one of the comments I frequently got in there is, yeah, I doubt that's legal. <laughs> <laughs> so did, is it legal? <laughs> Yes, it's, it's highly legal. Uh, yes, it is. Uh, but you, we get that question a lot as well. You know, really why that comes about is people have never heard of it. So I think when people find something to be so foreign, they just automatically think that, oh, wow, this can't be legal. There's got to be some law against it. And in reality, not only is it legal, but there was a Supreme Court ruling back in 1911. So it's well over 100 years ago. It's called Grigsby versus Russell that set the precedent that somebody could take their policy, just like their house or their car or their watch, treat it like property, gift it, give it away, sell it, whatever they want to do. And it took about 80 years, Buck, before the, you know, the, you could say, industry kind of kicked in and realized that there was a market for this. Uh, I call that the insurance company's best kept secret. Yeah. And, uh, and, and now today it's uh, 50 to $75 billion industry. What's interesting is, so it's it's an interesting Supreme Court case. I'm familiar with this <clears throat> because I was kind of curious about it. But Grigsby was a, was a surgeon, and uh, the patient was a, a patient was Mr. Bouchard, yeah. and this guy um, was already late on his insurance payments, and he was going to lose his policy anyway because he didn't have any money. He didn't have any money for a surgery that he needed, so he went to this Dr. Grigsby and he said, "How about?" You do my surgery and you take my policy 
And that way, you know, you'll get value, you know, when I die, more value than you're going to get for the price of the surgery. And I was going to lose this policy anyway because I can't pay for it. And yeah. so they did the deal. Of course, when he died, that's when everything, the insurance companies were like, wait a second, what yeah. did you just do? You can't do that. Can't yeah. do that. And that, that was the, but it's a pretty cool story actually. And, it, it and that's exactly what, one of the things that I love about this industry is that it, it creates opportunities for people. It sort of unlocks an opportunity for, um, for liquidity uh, for, for people who are pretty, you know, who might be in, in dire straits and they, you know, they're going to lose a policy anyway. They need some help right now. Uh, and sometimes that's that, that it, you're actually doing people a big favor in, in actually coming in and buying these things. So, um, you know, give us an example of, um, well, you talked about, I mean, why don't we know about this stuff, right? I mean, cause it sounds like some big guns, are involved with this, uh, Berkshire Hathaway, Bill Gates. Tell, I mean, so how has this thing evolved? I mean, this over 100 years ago when this whole, the legality of this thing is uh, established. Why did it take so long? Who got involved? And how has this thing all ultimately just moved forward? Yeah, the quick history of it is it was back in the late 80s, early 90s, where the AIDS epidemic really kicked in. And it was just a, a death sentence, unfortunately, for so many young people. And there were investors that came out and said, well, wait a minute. A lot of these people have these small $50,000 life insurance policies. They need money. Let's go ahead and buy their policy from them, give yeah. them a cash infusion to live out the remaining years of their, of their life in, in dignity. And that's really how it started. It started out as viaticals. And a viatical is basically a... Um, uh, a, a policy or someone that has less than two years to live. Of course, life settlements are not that today. It's evolved. But basically, that was the predecessor of, of life settlements. And about 1995, 1996, you had uh, the drugs that came out to prolong life. Well, that made it very difficult to predict life expectancy. So all of a sudden, the biotical industry, which was a very good industry for the insureds and for the investors, pretty much dried up. Yeah, because there wasn't any new money coming into it uh, because of the life expectancy issue. Well, there were some smart people that that uh, sat down. Some of them were on Wall Street. Some of them were off Wall Street. And they basically said, well, wait a minute, we're doing the same underwriting. But let's go ahead and look at uh, 80 to 90 year old life ins uh, insureds. And, and let's look at policies that are a million to 10 million dollars. And, and, and so basically, that's how it started. The, the challenge was most people, really no one who had those types of policies knew anything about it. So it took between 97 and really probably 2007, about 10 years for a brokerage side of the industry to kick in where you had people who were out educating people on the fact that you could sell your policy. Now you see TV commercials <clears throat> yeah. on it all. You know, like Coventry and all that. Now, yeah, but so so were the institutional guys were they in it already, or was this really the birth of the entire industry? The, yeah, the viatical industry really never saw many institutional players in it. It was it was smaller, you know, high net worth individuals that were going in to kind of save the day on with the viaticals. About ninety seven, ninety eight is when you started to see insurance companies come in and actually buy portfolios of these policies. Now, of course, they weren't buying the portfolios on their own company. They were buying it on multiple 
other companies to hedge uh, from their policies being purchased. And coincidentally, insurance companies are the largest investors in this, in, in this industry uh, altogether, um, which is... Well, that's, I mean, that tells you something, right? And, and on top of that, you got, um, I read that Berkshire Hathaway is a $600 million per year. And they're, what they're doing is interesting, too. Uh, I found it interesting is that they look at it not only as, you know, buying uh, policies and waiting for the expiration, but they're actually doing arbitrage, right? Yeah. So if they have, if they buy a policy from somebody who's 60, um, they may sell it five years later, you know, somebody who's 65 who's developed a health problem, right? right? So it's it's a really, really interesting asset class. Well, I mean, all these different things that you could do with it. Now let's go back to a little bit to that that um, the '90s and what happened there because I think, in many regards, when I learned about this concept of life settlements, Tim and I we've talked about this before. I thought, well, gosh, this is an absolute no-brainer. I don't understand why. Again, like a lot of things I saved, why didn't anybody tell me that I could do this before? But right. then. I did. I started Googling this, you know, viaticals and you know, life settlements and viaticals came up. And there was there was a lot of negativity because of a lot of fraudulent stuff that occurred. Yes. Um, can you talk about what happened? And because I know specifically I've even had some, uh, you know, I've had some people email me uh, telling me that about their experiences uh, back in the 90s with this. Can you can you address that a little bit? I definitely can. You know, our company has been around for 13 years. I've personally been involved with this for 11 and it was the wild west back in the nineties. Of course we, we started uh, in 05. We weren't in, we weren't open in the nineties, but it was the wild west. And so you had very little regulation. Um, states were trying to figure it out. Uh, federal, the federal government was trying to figure it out. So there was just a lot of confusion. And unfortunately, when any new asset class starts, there's going to be some bad actors involved in, in that. And um, yeah, there was some fraud. There was some, in fact, I think if you went on American Greed, of course, you can see things on stockbrokers and real estate and, you know, every asset class under the sun, but there's a life settlement uh, American Greed there as well. Um, and, and we're sad that that happened, but we're thankful in kind of an odd way that it did happen because that's what spawned regulation. That's what spawned the oversight that exists today. So it's pretty rare in today's market that you're seeing companies that are, that are, they're, most companies are quite transparent. Um, you know, they have experience. The Wild West days are absolutely gone. But with that said, there's different companies out there that do this. And you have, those are questions that need to be asked. You know, how transparent are you? What is your experience level? What's your track record? So, so it's we're thankful we're thankful for those days because it's gotten to us it's gotten to us to a point where uh, we really are today. Yeah, you know, um, along that lines, I'll say that it took me a long time to get behind um, one particular company to do this because I did I did feel like there was uh, no I don't think any the 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 groups that I looked at were not doing anything flagrantly, you know, fraudulent or anything like that, but there was still fairly loosey goosey in a lot of ways that I didn't right. feel comfortable with. Um, <clears throat> can you talk about the role of 
you know, one one thing you, uh, one thing that ASR uh, does is they buy policies through life settlement providers. Talk about that process because yeah. that, to me, was a big part of why I feel safe with you know this type of investing now as opposed to i mean we're not knocking on people's doors and 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 saying hey can i have a policy or you want to sell your policy i mean that's what you know some of these fraudulent things sounded like but what is this policy and tell us about the formal you know acquisition process and everything that's involved with that 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 can make us feel uh, that might you know give us some sense of comfort uh, about uh, you know going through this process with you yeah, and I, I don't want to do that, but if I could just jump back just for a moment and just address something you just said, because I think it's really important. Yeah. You know, you're looking at all these companies and what company are you going to work with? And the thing that we pride ourselves with so much on, and you know this, Buck, we've talked about this so much, is, is the level of transparency. And I, and I want to define that just for a second, because when you're in the life settlement business, there's things like life expectancy certificates. And we believe that anything that we see our investors should be able to see. And the difference between some companies out there is it's almost like a, hey, trust me, we do it our way. And there's this black box over here. We're not going to tell you what goes on in it. And in our world, we say, listen, we have closing documents. We want you to see those. We have beneficiary and ownership sign-off documents. We want you to see those. We want you to see the life expectancy certificates. We want you to see the ROI illustrations. We want you to see our annual audit that gets done um, on our fund. And, and that's to us really important. And there are companies out there today that probably could do that, elect not to do that. And so I just wanted to address, you know, transparency is this big word, but let's talk specifically about our company. And there is some real fundamental differences. So that's that. In terms of the process, to answer your question, it's a pretty interesting process. And so if somebody is 85 and they have an insurance policy they no longer need or want, most of the time, these are pretty sophisticated individuals. You know, like you said, we're not knocking on people's doors or we're not on street corners talking to old ladies or old men. I mean, these are, these are financial decisions that people are making. They're typically very wealthy individuals and they come to a point they don't need it anymore. Well, typically it's a CPA or a financial advisor that looks at Mr. Jones and says, you know what, this is, a, this is money that you don't need to spend any, any longer. So at that point, they go to a life settlement broker, which is not on the side that we're on. It's the other side of the fence, I call it. That life settlement broker then looks at the policy and determines, is this truly a sellable policy? You know, what's the age? What's the life expectancy? What kind of provisions does it have in the policy? So they do kind of a preliminary um, analysis on it. And then at that point, they will say, well, listen, this is probably where the market will be. Um, the market is like real estate. It's whatever the market will bear, but the broker can kind of give them an idea, just like a real estate broker could. So if the person's agreeable to that, then they'll go to market. And now they go to what's called a life settlement provider, which is not us. It's a, prov a provider is like the title company in real estate, all right? They're kind of the market maker in a sense. They're going to have all the access to all the people who want to buy policies. That might be institutions. It might be individual wealthy people who want to buy policies. It might be companies like us who operate funds and we want to basically buy policies to purchase into the fund. And so 
On the other side where we are, we are basically going to providers all around the country. There's about 20 providers. We work with probably five on a consistent basis. And we tell the providers, listen, we want this type of buy box. A buy box meaning we have an age, a type of policy, a life expectancy, all the particulars. And when they see those types of policies, we then get to see those policies that are available. And then we do our analysis and we determine, is this going to work? And if it does, then we start the negotiation process. Um, that doesn't commit us to it. We basically come to terms on price and then we do our analysis. And the provider does a financial uh, underwriting that's quite extensive. Uh, we would never buy a policy without using a financial underwriter like the provider. Uh, they have E&O coverage. So if they did something wrong, that would be uh, covered. But that's a really important part, you know, to make sure that there's no fraud in the insurance policy, to make sure that it's beyond the contestability period. There's about 30 things they check for to determine, is this a policy that will be um, a successful policy in terms of paying out? Because when you, and that sort of leads me to the idea of what are the risks, right? And um, when I started looking at that, I mean, one of the obvious ones is longevity. Uh, but other than that, you know, one of the things I, I was looking at is, okay, how do you, the real risk here is that somehow this, pol I mean, other than longevity is that the, that this policy somehow doesn't pay out or the company uh, doesn't, you know, the, 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 the fund doesn't do what it says it's going to do. So how do you mitigate against these various risks? Yeah. So longevity and illiquidity are the, are the main risk. But if you're talking about the risk of, will this policy pay off? Let's, let's talk about that. Yeah. It all, it all starts with the provider doing the financial underwriting to ensure that everything is what it says it is. When the person passes away, there'll be a death, death claim and it'll, it'll pay out. So if you believe, and I know you do, uh, but if anyone believes that their life insurance policy will pay off when they die or a spouse dies, then you really should have the same conviction and belief that when a life settlement policy basically matures, we call it a maturity, then the same thing will absolutely happen. Um, so the, the way that we know that is we're only dealing with top rated life insurance companies. And you could say, well, what if the insurance company just decides not to pay off? Well, that would be catastrophic for AXA or Lincoln Financial or John Hancock. It would be catastrophic because the insurance companies have built the reputation over hundreds of years for doing what? For paying on their death claims. Now, they still are massively profitable uh, because 90% of all policies for the most part, when you include term and all policies, they, they, they do uh, roll over uh, and they lapse at some point. But with ours, it's not going to lapse. So it has to pay off. And if it didn't pay off, it would be catastrophic for the reputation of the insurance companies. Yeah. And, and you know, the idea of the insurance companies not paying off is not really something that's legitimate. I mean, in the basically, I think I, I heard somewhere that in terms of claims, legitimate claims of death, there's never been, there's never been a, a recorded case where it was not paid out. Right. Now, understand, people think sometimes, well, what about suicide? Well, I was shocked to realize that in most states, 
after two years, it doesn't matter. There's really nothing right. that matters. It could be suicide. It could be anything um, that basically after two years, they got to pay. And, that's right. um, and so, um, so that's really not a big part of the risk element. So, you know, getting back to some of the other things that, you know, you guys do to mitigate the other various risks to an investor, maybe you could kind of talk about the risks and mitigation. Yeah. So one of the big ones is uh, life insurance premiums, right? So if, ever, if anybody that's watching, listening to this knows that if I own life insurance, I have to pay premiums monthly, quarterly, annually. And there's no difference here with life insurance, uh, life settlements. So the way that we mitigate the premiums, in other words, we, uh, we reduce the likelihood of a client coming out of pocket down the road is we escrow uh, typically up to the life expectancy of the insured. So if the policy or the insured's 85 and they have a five-year life expectancy, we'll typically escrow four or five years built into the cost of this policy right up front. Then what we do is when there is a maturity or again, we use that term loosely when there's a death, what we'll do is we will hold back at least 10% of the current death benefit. So let's say our fund is $25 million. The first policy matures and it's a $5 million death benefit. So now the death benefit is $20 million. We need at least uh, $2 million in that premium reserve before we will do a distribution to our investors. Um, that's, that's critical because if we paid it out all the time without that reserve, what we're going to obviously have to do is go back to our investors and collect premiums. So we're, you know, knock on wood in, in the six funds that we have operating right now, we've never had to go back to investors. Uh, we we want to continue that trend. We also have other options before we need to do that, like selling a policy in the fund. We can we can do that. Um, so there's some things that we can do to mitigate that risk that someone would have to come out of their own pocket. When you look at this, uh, when you look at this um, market, this asset class, I mean, it's in its infancy, and right now, <clears throat> for something so safe. I mean, it's, um, you know, the numbers, uh, if you look at the London School study um, that, that I've, I've sent to a number of people, um, the numbers are pretty good. Now, I would expect, though, based on, based on the sort of nature of this, I mean, this is a very secure type investment, that the yield are, are being as good as they are may not last in the future. Um, do, you, do you expect that to be the case as more and more people catch on? to the fact that they can invest this way? I think that there's some validity to that, but I will tell you in the 10 years that we've been, well, 11 years I've been involved in it, uh, 13 since ASR has been involved, we, we, we've seen a little bit of a decline, but surprisingly not that much. And I would also tell you that when you invest today and you lock into uh, a number of funds or, or policies, the, the rate is what the rate is, right? And so if, if we were concerned with, you know, let's say five years down the road that the returns drop off three or 5%, that won't affect our current portfolio. Right. It may affect how we buy them down yeah. the road, but, but not today. Yeah. That's I mean, in, in some ways, what I was trying to get at there is it's, it's something that to me, um, it's an opportunity right now, uh, yeah. potentially to look at and say, well, we're, if we're, 
<clears throat> if we're at the top of the cycle and if there's recession coming, where do, and I want to deploy some uh, some capital to hedge the economy, so to speak, um, knowing that yields are probably not ever going to get any better than they are now. Because, right. I mean, it, it, it's relatively, you know, there's not that many. There's a lot of people listening to this podcast who've never heard of this before. And these are a lot of sophisticated investors. Sure. Um, knowing that that ultimately can drive down future yields. So it might be worth looking into now. Um, so, Tim, uh, uh, I do want to thank you for being on the show today and um, and giving us some sense. Yeah. Are you... Uh, you know, specifically because of where we are in the economy and, and, and the role that this plays in it. And I just want to let everyone know that I do have a webinar that you can check out if you're really interested in this. And obviously, I got really interested in this um, and and um, and have been working with Tim uh, and ASR. You can look at you can watch that webinar that I did, which goes into a lot more detail on this on uh, at hedge theeconomy.com. Again, that's hedgetheeconomy.com. Not trying to be settled there at all, right? <laughs> so, yeah. Tim, uh, again, I want to thank you for being on the show and uh, hope to have you on again soon. Yeah, absolutely. Buck, can I just say one thing sure. before we wrap up? Uh, and I, I just realized that it hasn't been said yet. And one of the biggest advantages, and maybe why your folks are listening to this, you talk about hedge the economy. The number one reason our investors, you know, we've We've uh, done over a billion dollars of, of uh, policies in the last 13 years. Number one reason is that they love the fact that this is uncorrelated to everything you're talking about. Right. Stocks and bonds and mutual funds and real estate, all the things that are correlated, which by the way, well over 90% of most people's portfolio is attached some way to the economy. Life settlements aren't. Yep. And so it's a way, and you perfectly put it, you know, hedge the economy. It is a way to hedge the economy and hedge the portfolio. So I just want to make sure that really people understand where we are here in terms of where this asset class belongs. That's right. And, you know, just to, just to confirm uh, that as a, as a physician, which I am, yeah. death is not going anywhere anytime soon. <laughs> no. So uh, especially uh, when you're already, you know, 80 and have multiple health problems. So that's, Sure. That's that's the um, you know that's really what this whole uh, asset class is all about. So thanks for adding that, Tim, and and again, thanks for being on the show. Absolutely, thank you. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Hope you enjoyed that uh, conversation with Tim. Right now, if you're interested, again, in learning about life settlements, and you know, make sure to check out this webinar at hedgetheeconomy.com that I did. Uh, it may not be for you, you know, it may or may not be something for you, but if nothing else, uh, I think you'll be entertained because it's, you know, it's a fun little educational piece. And I go through, uh, some real policies of past, um, funds and show exactly how it works. Now, again, uh, just to be clear, this is a great hedge, the economy, but I don't want to be doom and gloom. I just don't like that kind of brand of rhetoric. I don't think it serves anyone well, but, you know, who knows what will happen with this economy. Um, and if there's a correction or a recession, maybe it won't even be that bad. Maybe it'll be just some explosions out in the Wall Street hills that most of us won't even really be affected by in Main Street. You know, who knows? And then on the other hand, maybe it really is a 
cataclysmic event. You know, one thing to uh, I will say is that pay attention, though, to this whole notion of uh, this demographic cliff, which virtually every economist I've spoken to uh, believes is going to happen, uh, which is in the in in the 2027 range, and it's just a confluence of demographics and and um, you know things like Medicare and and you know all those things kind of coming together, and a lot of people are predicting some kind of major um, major recession, depression type event. That's a different story though. That's a, that's based on demographics, and um, so that's something to uh, keep in mind. But for now, this might be something to think about, right? This might be something to say, hey, maybe it makes sense to take you know a percent, maybe five percent or ten percent or whatever of your investable assets into some place that's completely uncorrelated. So if Again, check out hedgetheeconomy.com. Now, I want to take this chance once again uh, before I go to remind you to download that Wealth Formula app, okay? It's going to have all sorts of cool stuff on it. Um, In fact, I think Phil put something on there right now that allows you to put my head uh, on all sorts of different uh, bodies and things like that. Um, and so I, I didn't, uh, I didn't sanction that, uh, but, uh, it, so it is what it is. Anyway, also, um, remember, uh, from the app or from the website to, to make sure to leave us a, uh, five-star review on iTunes. It certainly helps with this show, helps us continue to attract incredible talent to this show. That's it for me this week on Wealth Formula Podcast. This is Buck Joffrey signing off. Thank you for listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast. Visit us on the web at wealthformula.com. The information contained in this podcast are opinions, not fact. As always, consult your own financial team before making any investment. See you next time. Buck Joffrey here from Safe with Buck Joffrey. Aging might become reversible over the next 10 to 20 years. It's already being done in lab animals, so it's just a matter of time. Our challenge? To be healthy enough for when that time comes. As a former scientist and surgeon myself, my goal is to figure out how to do that and to share it with you. I wrote a book called Living Longer for Busy People that you can download for free at sapiopodcast.com. You'll be amazed at just how a few daily adjustments can add years of a healthy life for you. Again, download it for free, sapiopodcast.com.